Hello and welcome to The Scrum, a podcast about politics and media from Beacon Hill all the way to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley, and for this week's episode, we've assembled a crack roundtable, or scrum table, if you will, to tackle the news of the week. So I am joined by WGBHnews.org senior editor and resident Sage Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Greetings. Politico, Massachusetts reporter Lauren Dzenski. Lauren, hello, hello. as well. And our own Mike Dean, State House correspondent. Is it State House correspondent or State House reporter for WGBH News? Uh, it depends what verb I use. If I, we'll go with reporter. All right, State House reporter Mike <laughs> Dean. Thank you all for being here. And I'm going to move uh, fast because we have a fair amount of stuff to get through. I want to start with the great big. Uh, GE deal that's going to bring what I like to think of as one of the world's great corporations to Boston in the fairly near future. I'm wondering if you, Mike, and you, Lauren, we can get to Peter last because I know a little bit about what he thinks about this. Do you see this as more of a symbolic victory for Massachusetts and Boston, or do you see this as something that in some way is really going to be meaningful on an economic development level or on some other level? I think it's it's kind of a combination of both because that symbolism could, if uh, leveraged properly, have an actual economic impact in the way that Boston is seen, the way that that part of the city is seen as finally coming to fruition. A lot of people are seeing this as the last bit of uh, development that needs to come to the Seaport District uh, that could flop. I mean, it could turn out just to be 600 pretty decent high-end jobs, or it could be a Boston. And a helipad. And yes. a killer new helipad. <laughs> and a new bridge, yeah. too. A yeah. bridge to somewhere. Wait, but explain to me a little more about what this sort of best case scenario would be from your point of view. Um, what What is the sort of cascading effect that could potentially be created that would make this something that really pays off for the city and state? I would say getting across that sense of collaboration that, you know, the Baker and Walsh administrations are trying to pursue and promote in this deal and that, you know, GE came here because of all the other, uh, you know, positives that Boston and this part have as far as R&D and a, a up-and-coming community and everything that they'll put on their list. And then that would then respond with, well, other big companies should come here because they benefited, GE benefited from the smaller ones we already have. That sense of uh, corporate community right, right. could mm-hmm. be leveraged in a very successful way. And in that, in that scenario, would you envision you know, millions of dollars in direct and indirect spending, for example? Because that's something we heard about right at the outset. You look like you're maybe a little bit skeptical. I, it depends. I don't really know um, how much extra additional spending can be uh, put towards things like this. These types of tax breaks in a budget. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. S- I was thinking in terms of revenues generated by the oh, moves. Like you know, the people come. They, you know, they, they're high rollers flying in on their helicopter, and they get off, and then they. You know, buy a really expensive dinner at what? What are the places? Like Bobo. Like, uh, okay, yeah, thank you. I, yes, I'm sure it will. It'll help develop that neighborhood, and yes, it'll probably rise a little bit in Boston in general. Uh, whether it has a, a massive impact across the board for middle class uh, Bostonians, I'm not so sure. Lauren, what do you think? I mean, you know, first off, we're talking about 800 jobs uh, coming to the seaport. So, I mean, that is certain, you know, that that is a benefit. But, I mean, look at the speeches that were delivered last week with with the state of the Commonwealth and the state of the city speeches. Both both Mayor Walsh and both Governor Baker um, uh, 
both of them talked about the GE deal right. and and they championed it. And, you know, another thing that wasn't necessarily mentioned was was the extent uh, to which the cooperation and bipartisanship between the two administrations uh, helped uh, bring this deal to fruition. So I think that, you know, this is something initially that uh, both administrations are hanging their hats on, uh, that they're proud of and that they're talking about. And we also have the economic benefit. So to go back to your initial question, uh, there is like a leadership benefit to this. But just so I'm clear, are you you convinced that there will, in fact, be an economic benefit, that that a meaningful amount of money will be generated by this that will then go into the city coffers or the state coffers? I mean, I, don't, I honestly don't understand enough about tax revenue to really uh, speak authoritatively about that. By the way, if you had turned it around and asked me the question, if you'd been you been like, hey, what Do about you? you? Yeah, I would have <laughs> said, I think, something uh, very similar to what you just did. <laughs> I mean, it, it it would it would be a good thing for the city and the state, and I think that that perceived benefit was probably a motivation for both the mayor and the governor to pursue GE. So I think that I think it would be naive to think that there wouldn't be that type of economic benefit. And the city's talking what, like two hundred and sixty billion? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, two hundred sixty million plus. If I remember right, I remember John Barrows talking about how it was going to be, you know, ten times more, more than ten times over what the city was going to be providing in tax breaks. One thing that I, I, I do kind of want to express a little bit of skepticism about, uh, you know, we had one of the things that we dealt with with the Olympics and with Boston 2024 was the city and the state talking about these economic benefits that were going to come as a result of this big project and this big thing that was going to put us on the world stage. And then all of a sudden the numbers were kind of overblown. So, again, you know, I'm kind of speaking uh, with, you know, conspiracy theory tones, but, you know, let's have a little bit of skepticism and let's have some grains of salt when we're talking about the benefits here. Peter Kansas, well, what's your take? You know, look, it's it's a good deal. Um, I don't like the idea of giving tax breaks to anyone, but, you know, I'm not mayor, I'm not governor, and that's not the way the world works. Um, a big plus here could be in attracting other corporate headquarters. And I don't just mean companies like GE international companies like you know say there's a swiss pharmaceutical company looking to relocate in the united states you know that's pie in the sky but it's but it's reasonable in terms of the economic impact imagine the secondary impact how many more uber rides how many more lyft rides how many more fedex packages this isn't sexy stuff but we all know in the service economy that um you know, the sort of blue-collar level job this is good for. Um, but, you know, my big point is Boston's good for GE just as GE's good for Boston. A lot of this is going to be dependent on the sorts of relationships governments in GE maintain with each other. Um, I'm surprised more people haven't focused on it, but one reason GE wanted to leave is they, they developed a very rancorous, very personal animosity between the brass at GE and I'm, I'm blanking on his name. I believe it's the Speaker of the Connecticut House. Um, it wasn't the governor, Dan Malloy? For some reason, I had it in my head, and I hope I got that gubernatorial name right, that it was the governor who'd been... Uh, striking a really uh, combative. The, the governor had tone. been, but o overlooked was some people in the legislature were, and I, I, I think in, uh, in a move that many Bostonians could appreciate, GE just gave him the bird and said, <laughs> "We'll show you." Um, Lauren, let me uh, follow your lead here and confess my ignorance on something which I think is actually pretty important, and I'm hoping that that you three can fill me in. 
Is there anything that could be done either uh, on Beacon Hill or in City Hall that would either derail or significantly alter the deal that was made or the deals that were made to bring GE here? Uh, I mean, is there any opportunity for, for meaningful pushback? I don't think there's any practical way that uh, it would happen. I'm sure an act of the legislature could do that, but legislative leadership is so supportive of this move. Right, but but theoretically, theoretically, no, theoretically, couldn't the budget process yes. be used to put a kibosh on that? And that would be true to a certain degree in the Boston City Council as well. If if I remember correctly, the City Council cannot initiate in the budgeting process, but they, you, you know, can exert a negative. But you know. Senator Thomas J. Schmo, is he going to stand up on the, the floor of the Senate and take the heat for making GE not come here? More power to him if he's willing to do it. I Lauren, mean, may, maybe, maybe on a you know on a city level, if perhaps if there were a city councilor who was looking to challenge Mayor Marty Walsh in some sort of mayoral election coming up, you know this. This is uh, a, a reasonable grounds for contention. But as for process, I'd like to phone a friend and call Mr. Larry DeCara uh, and ask him if that would actually work. Uh, and so actually, that's something we should probably look into. And, what, calling and Larry? Call, I, I'm always happy to call Larry. But Mike, we should just do that anyway. Can you explain how that could conceivably work, or Peter, with the budgetary process? Because as I understand it, it's not like Governor Baker is going to be going to the House and Senate and saying, I would like your. I have struck this deal. Now I would like your blessing to ratify it, like you, you know, President Obama uh, might have to do with an international treaty, for example. Um, so, how might it work in theory, even if it's not going to happen for political reasons? How might it work that the legislature could? Um, make Charlie Baker's life difficult on this topic? Any number of ways. I mean, the legislature, of course, funds all of the executive offices. It wouldn't necessarily have to target this particular GE deals, but if the legislature wants to turn the screws on the administration, they certainly can. But don't you think it happened like this? Charlie Baker calls Speaker DeLeo, Bob, it's Charlie. What do you think about GE coming? Sounds great. Good. Thought so. Bye. I think that's (laughs) probably uh, close to exactly how it went down. Mm -hmm. Uh, and finally, on this topic, uh, as you guys know, there was this hashtag trending on Twitter uh, after the deal. Uh, I can't remember exactly when. A few days after the deal was announced, make GE pay from a bunch of people, some of whom were involved with the uh, pushback against the Boston Olympic bid, a bunch of people who basically were saying that as a matter of principle, it is wrong when a city like Boston has these things that deserve funding that aren't getting enough funding, schools being one example, mm-hmm. that it is simply morally wrong to throw large amounts of financial incentives at a company like GE, GE, which it's worth noting, has been excoriated by none other than Elizabeth Warren for figuring out these crafty ways to avoid paying federal taxes on any meaningful level. So what do you think about that opposition? Is it short-sighted, unrealistic, commendable, Peter? Well, look, I I won't pass judgment, but I saw a tweet this this morning from uh, uh, Senator Eldridge where he said, you know, what was it, $250 million for GE, $5 million? 150. Yeah, 150, I'm sorry. $150 for GE, um, $5 million for job training. Um, that tweet caught my attention and, you know, sort of focused me for a moment. But is that tweet fair? Because it's not, isn't it kind of an apples and oranges situation? It's not, GE, we are handing you $120 million in, you know, small bills. It's, we will not be charging you this money for coming here 
and therefore you're going to come here. Because you know what I'm saying? GE would not have come here unless they were promised they weren't going to have to pay uh, those tax monies. I know on the state level, there are some cases in which the government apparently is actually going to be making outright expenditures. But when it comes to tax, tax relief, isn't that a little dishonest I mean, to, to argue certain, the way Jamie Eldridge did? To a certain extent, I think it's the cost of doing business. And I mean, you're seeing natural opposition coming up as the result of this. Not everyone's going to be on board with this deal. Uh, and obviously, there are people who want schools to be funded and are going to you know, cast out on, on this GE deal. I just, I don't know. I just think that this is just kind of how it works. Yeah, to Eldridge's point, I think he was just trying to make a contrast between two of the governor's positions, one, 150 or whatever uh, in tax breaks for GE versus $5 million for uh, minority and veterans and disabled job training, which he announced yesterday. Um, I don't think Eldridge was treating it as an apples to apples question. Uh, you can't really tell from a 120 character tweet like that. Um, but that was, you know, it's a good question. He actually asked me in that same Twitter conversation to ask the governor, um, huh. a, a question along those lines. And I was having trouble squaring it away in my own head to, to make it a fair, um, question directly for the governor yesterday. But this is kind of the tack. This is when there is criticism of the Baker, uh, administration's decisions on things, you're going to see it as, well, why is it such a big number for this and such a relatively low number for this? It is worth mentioning that Jamie Eldridge was pretty vocal in his criticisms of uh, financial incentives for corporations under the Patrick administration as well. Yes, I thought that we were doing some really unwise things, for example, involving the state film tax credit. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole other No, I, I think there's a, a simple answer to all this, and it's one word, because. That's heavy, man. Yeah. All right. <laughs> On to our next topic. I meant it to be light. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I am, I believe, a, a little bit older than both you, Mike, and you, Lauren. Can you guys, just for the purposes of this next conversation, uh, share your ages with our listeners? Why don't you go first, Lauren? Uh, as of Friday, I will be 24. 24 years young. That's... <laughs> I, Age okay, is so, just a number, you guys. But, and by the number. way, if I, I think that if I had been 23 and if I'd landed a pretty sweet job with Politico in Boston, that I would actually be wearing my tender age proudly, <laughs> you know, for I everyone hair, to comment. So no one knows how old I am anymore. <laughs> All right, so you are soon to be 24, soon yeah. to be in your mid rather than your early 20s. Mike, what about you? All my hair fell out, so no one knows how old I am anymore. <laughs> uh, I am 30. All right, the reason that Peter, do you want to share your age? No. No. If I had to, you do too. All right, sixty-three. All right, and I'm I'm uh, I'm forty-three. So we have sort of a generational span going on here. I'm wondering, Mike and Lauren, what you guys make of the repeated reports that, uh, for some reason, millennials, which I believe is your generation, are way more enamored of Bernie Sanders than of Hillary Clinton. Um, does that jibe with conversations that you've had with your own friends and acquaintances, some of whom may, of course, be backing Donald Trump or another Republican? Does it jibe with what you've heard? And if so, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think it's always the case. I mean, the youth vote is – and this is kind of the – if we're looking at millennials as the older side of the youth vote, um, which I – you know, what are we going to say? It's, it's not necessarily 18-year-olds voting in their first election, but it's people up to 35 years old who have kind of a, a somewhat separate – uh, set of issues here, but they're always going to go with you know the the left. Uh, I think that's probably been true of every Democratic primary that has you know from McGovern on. It's always kind of been that way. So you think it's just a matter of ideology? The young people like the uh, populist fire, at least the young liberals like the more. Uh, populist, aggressive, unapologetic yeah, candidate. Yeah, let's also keep in mind that um, my generation has never really known a world without a Clinton. 
Um, we, Very good We point. grew up with her as first lady. I mean, my you know, 1992 when I was what, seven years old. I, uh, you know, she's been a, a big part of the life. So when you look at what the what you may look at as the establishment, uh, as the Democratic Party, the Clintons are right there. And even though Bernie's, you know, older than she is, uh, he's a new face, um, especially when it's you know doing this kind of populist socialist message. I can see why younger people would be attracted to that. Lauren Dzenska, I see you nodding emphatically as Mike talks. Do you agree with what he was saying? I am, and I also think that one thing that needs to be pointed out about Bernie Sanders' support, and particularly his younger support base, is that it is overwhelmingly white. Um, and I think that we're definitely going to see this uh, in the later contests. Obviously, New Hampshire and Iowa are both contests in which uh, the white uh, voting representation is much stronger. Um, but I'm very curious to see to what extent the youth vote supports him uh, in in South Carolina and even Nevada to a certain extent. But to to kind of talk a little bit more about this. So my younger sister is 21 years old, a, uh, goes to school in Des Moines, and so she'll be participating in the caucuses next week. Uh, she is a registered Democrat, and uh, I've been talking Can to her Can we name her on air? Is that... Yeah, Morgan Dzenska. Right. She looks just like me. She's nicer than me, though. Um, but, <laughs> but basically, I've been... You know, I've been trying to pick her brain about, you know, who she's supporting and who her friends are supporting. And for her, she doesn't like Bernie Sanders because he's a little too pie in the sky. Uh, she kind of just doesn't get it. But she she and her friends do not necessarily trust what Hillary Clinton is saying. You know, it's it's whether it's uh, an acknowledgement of well, the, the choice is obvious. Song. It's Martin O'Malley. So, yeah. So she's actually leaning toward Martin O'Malley, huh. which wow. I was no. very surprised. By. She's, you know, and, and that's not to say that, you know, every single student at Drake University in Des Moines is, is leaning toward Martin O'Malley. But, you know, I think that it's it that is kind of this other segment of, of voters. I'm kind of embarrassed. I didn't even think of that as a possibility to be broached in this discussion. No, no offense to, to Matt O'Malley, Boston City Councilor, and Martin O'Malley, Superfan Peter way, Kansas. I, I didn't either, but you know, I think there is more than a little bit refreshing about the idealism of the younger voters. Um, I, I'm, Which apparently has totally skipped Lauren's sister since she sees Sanders well, as a. <laughs> She also has me as an older sister to kind of deal with, so. Um, but but no, I mean I'm I'm really struck with the 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 true believer intensity that you know m many I'd say twenty something I sort of hate the term millennial, but many twenty something supporters of Bernie have. Um, you, you know I'm I'm older and cynical, and I, I vote according to the, who, who's the. You know the the least who's going to do the least damage, but it's nice that there are people out there who actually look on the optimistic side, and um, it'll be interesting to see how many of these people can be mobilized. I sort of see the answer to what we're talking about, or the real revelation, comes in the mechanics, the logistics of getting people out to vote. Lauren and Mike, I, I got to ask you um, on the same topic, and I, I want to start with you, Lauren, for reasons that will be obvious. Are the people of your sort of uh, cohort age-wise, are they enthusiastic, people who are left-leaning or, or democratic-leaning, are they excited about the prospect of electing the first female president, or is that not something that you hear talked about a lot? That was more of a conversation point earlier on in the process. Um, I think now kind of as the as we're approaching November, I've been really struck by the number of 
friends that I have that are really serious Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, so, I, and and I don't know. So, so to answer your question, not necessarily. That's, that's, yeah, not yeah. necessarily. Uh, well, I think Mike really hit on something when he said the Clintons, the the, the duo, have been around for a long, long time, and and that does affect perceptions. I mean, Bernie's come out of left field. In uh, I mean, uh, mm. I know Baboom very bad, but you know field. what 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 happened is. Bernie, much like Donald Trump, I think, began running as a gesture and found out that, wow, they're the real thing. That's, by the way, we're not talking about Bloomberg, but that's why I just don't see Bloomberg. Bloomberg's not willing to, like, just roll the dice and see where they fall. Mm -hmm. Um, But Bernie and Trump have something in common there. I guess the question comes down to, as far as the youth vote, is Bernie Sanders more like Barack Obama in 2008 or Howard Dean in 2004? Or Larry Sanders. Yeah, yeah, or or Larry Sanders. Can you elaborate on that, Mike? Well, I mean, Howard Dean, uh, you know, Famously fell flat in Iowa in 2004, and uh, you know gave the opening for for John Kerry to you know snatch the, the nomination away. Whereas in 2008, it was a fairly bitter primary process through Super Tuesday and well you know, after that between Clinton and Obama. Um, I think you know to Lauren's previous point, the fact that Sanders supporters are so white, it just shows that he, Sanders does not have the coalition of the left that Obama did in 2008 to beat her. Oh, go ahead. Another thing worth noting, uh, one of the key aspects of Obama's support in 2008 was he had the young vote and the younger voters convinced their parents to vote for Obama. I don't see any of my friends' parents voting for Bernie Sanders because their kids are jazzed about Bernie Sanders as a candidate. Yeah, yeah, that that has a lot to do with the stigma of socialism. I think uh, if you grew up in a, a Cold War era, you may have some certain feelings just about the word socialism that is anathema to you, whereas somebody who grew up in the 90s and 2000s uh, never really had too much experience. No one was saying socialist, communist all the time to us. Interesting. In a negative way. My final question on this topic, and and Peter, you know, I can't let this go and and insist on bringing it up again and again, but Mike, since you used the word establishment in reference to the Clintons, I got in a a big Big uh, thing on on Twitter (laughs) a while back, and one of the debates where I took issue with Hillary's uh, contention, Hillary Clinton's contention, that she was an outsider by dint of being a woman uh, running for the presidency. And her claim, obviously, is, you know, there's never been a woman president, therefore I'm an outsider. I think of her as an ultimate Democratic insider. And I was really surprised at how many people, uh, mostly women, not exclusively, took vigorous issue with my assertion that she was part of the establishment. Uh, they they said, you know, you don't understand. As a man, you cannot understand um, how clearly and obviously, she is, in fact, an outsider and always will be by virtue of her gender, no matter what job she holds along the way. So have you gotten that kind of pushback from anyone? I have. Um, and there, there's certainly something to that. And I think if we look at, you know, take the 40,000 foot view of all of this and let's say she wins and somebody's looking at a portrait studio, you know, a portrait gallery uh, 100 years from now, you're going to see white guy, white guy, white guy, black guy, woman. Um, white woman. Th- white woman. Yeah. And that's that's going to be impactful. So historically, yes, of course, there are um, elements to her by being a woman that are she's in a different league in a lot of ways with a different set of challenges that cannot be overcome because, you know, the old boys uh, club is still very much active in national politics. However, uh, she has spent the last 30 years winning that establishment and triumphing over it. 
so in a little ways, we're kind of talking about two different things. I'm yep. not denying that there are uh, unique challenges that Hillary Clinton as a candidate faces and will face as a president should she win. Uh, however, if we're looking at what the state of the Democratic establishment is right now, it's Clinton country. All right. Our final topic for the day. Uh, state Senator Ben Downing has announced that he is not going to seek reelection and is going to be leaving the Senate. Remind me how old Ben Downing is. He's about 35. Yeah, I was going to say he's like one of you guys kind of, right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, he's technically a millennial. Uh are you surprised that he's exiting? I mean, he's one of the bright lights, I would say, of the liberal wing of the Massachusetts Democratic Party. The announcement that he's going to leave the state house uh, and leave uh, political life, uh, narrowly speaking, seemed to catch a lot of people by surprise. Were you too surprised by it? I mean, he'd always been saying that he was only going to serve for 10 years. Uh, so for people who have been paying attention, I not that's not to say that I was. I was surprised yesterday when, when I saw the press release. I didn't know he had said that, so. Yeah. That was not <laughs> on my radar either, but talking to people who are connected to Western Massachusetts, their response was, well, no, this is what he's been saying. Huh. So so perhaps this is, you know, the, what is the this Eastern Massachusetts. Western Massachusetts? Yes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've been there once or twice, maybe. Um so, so you know, perhaps this is somewhat of, you know, eastern Massachusetts capital city kind of, you know, our heads yeah. are, you know, stuck in the state house sort of thing. Do you think um, he'd be keeping his pledge not to serve for more than 10 years if uh, Martha Coakley were governor instead of Charlie Baker? Or perhaps if, you know, there was a clear path to success with some of this energy stuff and solar net metering battles. Um, you know, I think for him, you know, he's he's been fighting the good fight with this uh, clean energy stuff for so long that, you know, it there is a path to success that isn't necessarily in the legislature. Well, if I could just make a, a, a quick correction, he's leaving electorate electoral political life. He can still be active. Politically. See, I tried Absolutely. to cover my ass with that, leaving politics narrowly speaking, but I see you lack the grace to let me. <laughs> Whoa! I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm Correct him on I am glad that you clarified that. He could still, yes, your well, point is very well While taken. we're on that, I just want to apologize to everyone west of Worcester that we've now gravely insulted with our comments about Western Massachusetts. I deeply apologize. Um, but I, yeah, I think a lot of people were disappointed to see that Downing was... Uh, Leaving the elected political, um, you know, spectrum here. But you're right. He he's still a prominent voice on environmental and energy issues in the state. He will continue to be, um, you know, he, whatever his personal reasons for leaving, whether it was a, a decade cap or or whatever. Um, politically, I think a lot of people are just bummed that they're losing someone on the Democratic bench as uh, as full of potential as Downing is. I want to give so the likeable. oh, go ahead, go ahead. And he is so likable. I mean, he really does have a lot of people who really are his fans and even just seeing the outpouring of support you know when it was announced yesterday that he wasn't going to run like clearly yeah. he's people like him and My, he's, he's leaving as a man of his word yes Mike, he own. pushed back um, fairly hard right after we had that conversation a couple weeks back. You had spoken with Governor Baker about his approach to various energy issues and I know Ben Downing um, doesn't like the way that Governor Baker is approaching clean energy in particular, correct? I wouldn't say that he he doesn't like the way he's approaching it. I think okay. everyone agrees that it needs to be a certain combination of clean energy um, to get us there. A combo platter. The combo platter. The governor wants more hydropower uh, pumped in from Canada on that combo platter, and Ben Downing is more of a proponent of increasing you know, solar and wind and some other um, you know, some other sources of renewable energy that the governor may think it's too expensive. Uh, the thing about energy is everyone kind of agrees on what needs to be done. No one seems to agree on the certain combination that needs to be there. All right. 
Uh, that, I think, is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Peter Kadzis, I want to apologize for my yes. uh, well, you classless <laughs> dig Whipper, earlier. Whippersnapper. Um, Peter Kadzis, thank you, as always, for partaking in this. Also, thanks to Mike Dean, WGBH's State House reporter, WGBH News's State House reporter, and Lauren Dzenski. Uh, and Lauren, what's your fancy title at Politico? Uh, reporter and Massachusetts Playbook author. There you have it, folks. Uh, Author. Book reading next week at the, the Brattle. You betcha. Now, if you like the Scrum and want new episodes magically transported onto your phone device, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and at our blog at the new WGBH.org. You can email us at scrum at WGBH.org to tell us what we got wrong, what we should do differently, maybe uh, offer a little bit of praise. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. I'm Adam Riley, and the Scrum is a production of WGBH News. 